If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to the book of James, chapter 3. James, chapter 3. As we've seen in our study, the book of James is a sermon. In the first chapter is the introduction to the sermon, and it has three points. The first point is covered in chapter 2. It deals with caring for those in need, but the key thought is that of faith. Belief. We live in a time in this country in which what one believes actually doesn't cause any problems because it's not supposed to affect how you live, how you behave, how you act. That is to say, most people believe that faith of any kind is supposed to be privately engaging but publicly irrelevant. It's just an inner impulse. And I would ask, would such a faith be persecuted? I would say that persecution may come because of proclamation, but I think persecution also comes because of living out the faith. But if, in fact, we think it's privately engaging and publicly irrelevant, then then we have little to fear in terms of opposition. In chapter 3, James comes to his second point. What he mentioned first in chapter 1, but he rearranged the order so that he started with caring for those in need, and now he talks about controlling one's tongue. It's not the first time James has talked about this. In chapter 1, verse number 19, he says, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be slow to Uh, should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And then in verse 26, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. This is not unique to James. James is not the first person to talk or to emphasize the issue of one's speech. The Bible is filled with such statements of how important our words are. After all, if you think about it, the world came into being because God spoke words. He spoke and the world came into being. But it's not only creation that this happens, it also happens in the fall. The serpent spoke to Eve, tempted her, and she ate. And so we have the fall. And so as we've seen, this creation, fall, redemption, but we're in a fallen state. And so much of what we find in scripture about the tongue, about speech, is in fact uh, negative, if you would put it that way. It talks about misusing our tongues or sinning with our tongues. I'll read a number of passages from Proverbs 29. Do you see a man who speaks in haste? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And then from Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty men? Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? Your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor, you who practice this heat. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, O you deceitful tongue. Psalm 52, it's a psalm that David wrote about Doeg, the Edomite. If you know the story, David is on the run from Saul, and he goes to where the priests are, and he asks for a weapon. There they have the sword of Goliath. 
He also gets food, the showbread, which is only for the priest. Well, Doeg is there and he sees it and he goes and rats David out and, and tells Saul David was with Ahimelech, the priest. And so Saul confronts him and Ahimelech's like, I thought he was your servant. Um, hasn't he been serving you all these years? Saul loses it and he tells his soldiers, kill all the priests. And they are unwilling to do it. I mean, who would want to kill a priest of God? So he says to Doeg, the Edomite, who's not an Israelite, kill the priest. And he does. He kills 85 of the priests. And then he also put to the sword uh, Nob, the town of the priest, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. He massacred the town. But in Psalm 52, it isn't the massacre that David writes about. It is, in fact, about his tongue, one that plots destruction, that speaks evil, speaks falsehood, and is deceitful. The tongue is mentioned 134 times in Scripture, 34 times in the book of Psalms. Um, And so we find this time and time again, and certainly in Psalm 52. Uh, But also in the book of Proverbs, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue. And then he goes on to give the other five. When Isaiah had his vision of the Lord in the temple, his response is, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It's not simply left in the Old Testament to talk about the tongue. We find it in the New Testament. But interestingly enough, and this will come up in the reading next week from the New Testament, Paul quotes from the book of Psalms, three different Psalms. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. But those who are the people of God, those who have been redeemed by God, are to be marked by the fact that they are truthful in their speech. They have been redeemed. When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. He who guards his mouth and his tongue keeps himself from calamity. Then there is the famous passage in Ecclesiastes 3, telling us that there is a time for everything, a time to be silent and a time to speak. Peter told his readers, whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. That's from Second Peter, but he's also quoting from the book of Psalms, Psalm 34. And then the words of Jesus speak volumes here, no pun intended. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So the issue of controlling your tongue is in fact of critical importance. You might say, well, Damon, that's all very well and good, but how does it fit within the scheme of James' epistle? I mean, what is the connection between what we saw in chapter 2 and now what we see in chapter 3? And one might argue, well, there doesn't have to be a connection because... That was the first point. Now we're coming to the second point of the sermon. But I think James was very careful in how he constructed this sermon. There are important ties and connections that brought the different parts of the letter together. 
The point that James tried to make in chapter 2 is that our faith must be put into practice. Okay? Particularly in how we care for those who are in need. So he wrote in chapter 1, do not merely listen to the word, so deceive yourselves, do what it says. And then in chapter 2, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith without works is dead. Now as he turns to the matter of controlling your tongue, we should recognize that works are not the only action, words are as well. So it isn't simply Oh, I must do the right things. We must also speak the things that are true. If we're not careful, we might make the mistake of thinking that words are not important for James because of what he wrote in chapter 2, that when you see someone who is in need, they need clothing, they need food, and you say, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed. And it's like, he's like, you know, words are not Significant. You need to do something. So we might think, well, yeah, words maybe are not that important. But I think what James wants us to know is that words are not enough, but words, in fact, are important. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, words are not enough, but they are, in fact, important. And in our culture today, this is something that needs to be said, that needs to be affirmed, Indeed, needs to be shouted. Because we live in a time in which images have replaced words. Images are a primary means of communication, the conveyor of ideas. And in our culture, one is now no longer held to one's word. The days of a person's word being his or her bond, I think, are long gone. Few expect that promises that are made would be kept. We live in the age of spinning and interpretation. That if somebody says something, oh, they didn't really mean it the way you think they meant it. Here, let me tell you what they really meant. We live in an era of endless political races. I don't know if you've noticed, haven't had it so much because we're not in like full throttle yet, but Somebody will, after a debate or after giving a speech, will have people who will tell the media, well, this is what he or she meant to say. This is what they mean. Um, that, so words in and of themselves, interestingly enough, that's what you use to interpret, but uh, what the candidate says, don't, don't take that at face value. What we hear from James is that watching what you say is, in fact, quite important. Now, James does something very much what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. We're looking in one direction, and then we get sort of sucker punched because he goes in a different direction. So Jesus starts out, blessed are the, and that's good, the poor. Well, that's not what we were expecting. And blessed are, okay, maybe this will be better, the meek. No. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, James chapter 1 starts out with, consider it pure joy, my brothers. Okay, that sounds good. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. That doesn't sound quite so good. And then in chapter 2, when he talks about caring for those in need, my brothers as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. 
Uh, that doesn't really seem to connect with the whole idea of caring for those in need. And now we come to chapter 3, which is about controlling your tongue, and how does he start? Look, if you would, at verse number 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. The first thing that may come to mind is, what is this verse doing in this section? I thought we were going to be talking about controlling the tongue. What does wanting to be a teacher have to do with watching your tongue? Um, the three things I point out from this verse. First of all, my brothers. So there's this pastoral affection that we see throughout this book. You know. So James isn't telling something they don't know. He's not like, you know, you guys have been gone from Jerusalem. You're scattered all over the basin, Mediterranean basin, because of persecution. You don't know this, but let me tell you. No, they know this, okay? And then he includes himself when he says we. It's not like you all. It's like we. He talks here about teachers, right at the beginning, about controlling your tongue. In the early church, teachers played a prominent role in the life of the church. By the way, side note, I think they still should. Um, it's been neglected. Paul singles out those uh, who are teachers as one of the three most prominent figures in the early church. You have apostles, you have prophets, and you have teachers. They're comparable to the Jewish rabbi. The teacher in the early church was entrusted as a crucial link between Jesus, the apostles, and the churches that are now being established throughout the Mediterranean basin. And there's a certain amount of authority, no doubt, but also prestige with being a teacher in the early church. And so as I think it's human nature, as would be natural, uh, people desired to be teachers. They wanted to have this position in the church. Um, and in a society where you don't have social mobility like we do, uh, this becomes even more uh, prominent. Jesus warned his disciples about this, about wanting to be called rabbi, wanting to be called teacher. Jesus said, this is in Matthew chapter 23, as he speaks of the religious leaders, they love to be greeted in the marketplace and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. And do not let anyone on earth call you father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. So that sort of puts a damper on things. Um, there is a natural desire to have authority to have people listen to what you say and do what you say. Uh, we live in a time in which it seems that everybody wants to talk. Everybody wants to be an influencer. We think that everybody has the right to talk. After all, the First Amendment, freedom of speech. Um, and I think this has come into the church where we have those who perhaps are new to the faith, or those who are still not mature in the faith, are put in positions of teaching simply because they are well known. Um, James warns us against presuming to be teachers. Um, he doesn't go into this aspect of the office of the teacher, um, 
But I would say we need to realize that to, to be a teacher is not something that one takes upon oneself. That is to say, if somebody has the inclination, if they have the gifts to be a teacher, and it is recognized by others, particularly in the church, then that person may be a teacher. But it isn't something that one should presume to take upon himself to be a teacher. Again, some of Jesus' greatest condemnation were for the teachers of the law, those who had taken these positions on themselves. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogues and in the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. James is not discouraging those who believe that they should be teachers, okay? But he wants to impress on them the seriousness of the ministry, particularly when it comes to the matter of speech. As Jesus said to his disciples, to whom much is given, much is required. Those who have been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. But still it doesn't answer the question, why is this the first verse in chapter 3? Why is this the first verse when we come to the issue of controlling one's tongue? It's sheer speculation on my part. I want to make that clear. But consider that James is writing to people who used to live in Jerusalem. Some of them heard the apostles teach. In fact, I would say most of them did. And some of them may have even heard Jesus teach. They had been to the temple. They had participated in the sacrificial system. Now they are scattered in the diaspora. And the Jews have been scattered for centuries. But now you have these new Jews who are Christians who are scattered. And since they've just come from Jerusalem, it's like there's a certain prestige. Oh, you're from Jerusalem. Do you have something you want to tell us? Is there something you want to teach us? Oh, you know the apostles. You've heard Jesus. And it sort of opens the door for people to be given positions of teaching that, frankly, they do not, they're not supposed to have. I don't want to say they don't deserve it, but they are not supposed to have these positions. So just because they're from Jerusalem, just because they had heard the apostles, does not give them the right to take on the office of teacher. So James opens his second point about controlling your tongue by warning against this tendency. And what greater warning could there be than that of judgment? You know that those who teach, we who teach, will be judged more strictly. Something that must be taken to heart. We should not be surprised that James speaks of judgment here. Uh, he did in chapter 2. Uh, Though he said, as we, we are those who will be judged by the law. We will be judged by the law that gives freedom. And so now 
James talks about judgment again. And from this, it's a springboard, he now talks about the matter of the tongue. Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 10 through 12, here in James chapter 3. The NIV doesn't have this, but I've supplied the word for, other translations do. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by men. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Why is the tongue so important? Well, James is going to tell us six things about the tongue. First of all, in verses 2, 3, and 4, it holds the key, a key place in holy living. We may stumble in many ways, but if you can, in fact, never be at fault in your speaking, uh, then you are, in fact, a perfect person. But I want to focus on when he says we stumble in many ways. In other words, we're all sinners. Sin remains the universal experience. And if we would be honest, sins of speech are striking and are prominent. The hasty word, the untruthful statement, it's a polite way of saying lie, the sly suggestion, innuendo, gossip, impurity. Yeah, I don't think it takes much for us to agree with James that if you can control your tongue, uh, you would probably be considered a perfect person. By the way, there has only been one perfect person in human history. And Peter writes about him, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Peter, by the way, is quoting from Isaiah 53, 9. This is someone that James grew up with. He has the experience of living with someone who, in fact, was perfect. Here at the beginning, though, I think James is starting out on a positive note. The point he wants to make is not we need to be on our guard against the hasty word or the impure word or a lying word, okay, whatever our weakness may be. But rather, the positive point that if we can, in fact, control our tongues, we, in fact, control ourselves. And he gives two examples to illustrate this. 
that of bits in the mouths of horses and the rudder on a ship. In both cases, it is something that is relatively small compared to the size of the horse, compared to the size of the ship, and yet it controls. It controls the horse, it controls where the ship goes. The difference between the two, between the horse and the ship, is that the forces at work are internal with the horse, external with the ship. You have the winds that blow it. Still, in both cases, it's something relatively small. It's not a big thing, and yet it has the power to control which direction the horse will go, which direction a ship will go. I think we would rather control our circumstances, but James calls us to control our tongues. It is a key factor in consistent living. It is, if you wish, the master switch. It may have crossed your mind, as I'm speaking of this, that James, by referring to the tongue, is in fact, that he means something much more than simply something we say out loud. Because we could say, well, you know, if you want to control your tongue, just, you know, sort of cut your vocal cords and then you'll never say anything you shouldn't say. Well, obviously, it's much more than that. It begins in our heart and it comes out through our mouths. Generally speaking, we don't say words without thinking. It begins in the brain and the mind and then it comes out our mouths. I don't know about you, but in writing a letter, I usually, I don't necessarily say it out loud, but I, I run it through in my head before it comes out of the pen or the pencil. Um, I, I think about what I'm going to say. By the way, I find that this is oftentimes less the case when it comes to email. And so emails tend to be sloppy and uh, sometimes not on purpose, but can be hurtful because we haven't put any thought into what we're saying. If our tongues are under control, that we refuse to formulate the words, then these words, even before they have a chance to live, they're cut down and they are put out. So for James, you need to control this aspect of who you are. And if you can, you can control your whole person. It all starts with the tongue. We'll come back to this in a few minutes. The second point he makes is in verses 5 and 6, and that is that the tongue has enormous power for real harm. The illustrations that he used at the beginning, the horse and the ship, were passive. You know, the rudder directs the ship. The bit you know, tells the horse where to go. Here, in fact, what we have is something that is active. It is a fire. It's something that burns. It is a force in its own right, as a tiny spark may in fact cause a forest fire. And fire takes on a life of its own, so does the tongue. The tongue also is a fire, James tells us. And he tells us four things here. The character of the tongue, that it is a world of evil among the parts of the body. We've talked about this before, but the concept of the world isn't simply, oh, we're the church and they're the world. The world is, in fact, a system that is set up against God. It is in rebellion against God. 
God created, he sustains it, and yet the world is in rebellion against him. That we want to achieve, or the world wants to achieve certain things without any reference to God, his laws, his values, or his judgment. We want to do it our own way. So the tongue is the same way. It wants to do what it wants to do. Without thought of God, his values, or his judgment. It is, in fact, a system that stands in opposition to God. Secondly, it corrupts the whole person. Because it is so fundamentally involved with who we are as people, our thoughts, our imaginings, our longings, our plans, it, in fact, influences the whole person and it corrupts the whole person. It leaves a stain everywhere it goes. Thirdly, its continuance, it sets the whole course of his life on fire. The tongue doesn't sort of corrupt a little bit and then go away. It's an ongoing force. It, in fact, corrupts the whole person. And then lastly, um, itself, it, is, it is itself set on fire by hell. This is fascinating. Because can you think of another event in the New Testament, well, not say the Bible, the New Testament, in which you have fire and people speaking? It's the day of Pentecost, when flames of fire came on the heads of the, the apostles, and then they spoke in different tongues, so that they could preach the good news that people were to repent. That was what we would call holy fire, heavenly fire. Well, you know what? There's also hellish fire. There's the fire from hell. And both, by the way, are intended to direct how we use our tongues and what it is that we say. Let's stop and think a minute. What has James told us so far about the tongue? He's told us about the good that can come from it, and he's told us about the harm that can come from it. Um, the second one I think we'd all agree with. If we'd take a poll here, I think we'd agree that the tongue can do incredible damage. That what we say, what people say about us, to us, or whatever, can do incredible damage. Um, we're not so sure about the first. You know, that if you can control your tongue that you're a perfect person. There's part of us, I think, that might buy into this, because there is, after all, the famous saying, better to be silent and thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Um, but we are so influenced in this culture with the idea that we have the right to speak our minds, that we have freedom of speech, that I can say what I want to say. Um, We have reservations about the first, but the second one, we, we definitely, yeah, James, we agree. Amen. The tongue can do incredible damage, and some of us have experienced that. Perhaps some of us have participated in that, but we know that the tongue can do great harm. But then we come to the third point, which is perhaps the most difficult of the six, and that is that the tongue is humanly uncontrollable. In verses 7 and 8, 
well, James says, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them dominion over all creation and all, over all creatures. Once Adam and Eve sinned, I would say that that, that mandate was still in force. We are still to have dominion. We are to take care of God's creation, um, whether we acknowledge it or not. And a part of this is seen in the fact that human beings have tamed all kinds of creatures. Um, animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea. I mean, go down to SeaWorld and see what they've done there. Um, they've all been tamed. And it's amazing. Think of lions and tigers, hawks, all these creatures have been tamed. Not all of them, but all kinds have been tamed. But no one can tame the tongue. The human tongue is a restless evil. It is full of deadly poison. Restless indicates that it's, it's always on the verge of breaking out. It's just, it just can hardly wait to finally break out and do its damage. Just as an untamed or a half-tamed or badly tamed animal can suddenly react in a bad way, that's the way that our tongues are. Well, let me ask you, is James right about this? Do you think that he's right? It is interesting that in verse 7, the NIV has tamed by man, and the King James has tamed of mankind, but the literal reading is tamed by human nature that it is in human nature that allows us to tame animals and birds and creatures of the sea. It's because of the way God has made us. Yeah, well, that same human nature cannot tame the tongue. It's just not, not, not natural to us. And I would remind you again of the day of, of Pentecost. It required the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to enable these men to speak the truth, to preach on the day of Pentecost. The fourth thing he tells us is that it involves us so easily in the sin of inconsistency. Verse 9, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers, this should not be. James has already spoken about inconsistency. In chapter 1, he talks about being double-minded. That is, you act as though you believe, and at the same time, you act as though you do not believe. You're in two minds. It isn't simply mental process. It is in our actions that we are inconsistent. And then in chapter 2, when he talks about discriminating between two brothers who come in, one is rich and one looks like a beggar, so we act the way we should. Well, that's sort of debatable, but we act in Christian hospitality to the person who is rich, and we do not to the person who looks like a beggar. Now James adds a third way in which we can be inconsistent, and that is that with our tongues, we sing together, we praise God. With the same tongue, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. By the way, I would just point out, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. And by Lord there, I think he means the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he opens his letter, a servant of God, I would say the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So to praise the Lord Jesus, who is the Son of God, who came to reveal the Father to us, while cursing others who are made in the image of God, is profoundly inconsistent. Out of the same mouth comes praising God and cursing those made in God's image. James is very careful in what he says. It isn't simply, oh, you curse people. You know, you could save some ink by just saying people instead of saying those made in the image of God. Um, But no. You praise the creator and then you curse the creature made in the image of the creator. That, That doesn't make sense. This shouldn't be glossed over. You know, when God spoke to Noah after the flood, he said, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. An attack on a person is an attack on God. We are, in fact, those who bear the image of God. And if you kill someone, then you have killed someone who bears the image of God. You can't kill God, but you can kill someone who is made in his image. The fifth point is, and this I think we're reading in between the lines, is that the pollution from the tongue is its sweet, is its bitterness, if you wish, its saltiness, and it prevails. Um, verse number 11, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? The question is asked in such a way as the answer is obviously no, okay? You have sweet water, fresh water, you have salt water or bitter water, and they come from the same outlet. We would not know unless we are told that there are two sources of water. You know why? Because the bitter water wins out. The salty water wins out. If you go to a spring that has two sources, fresh water, salt water, but you're downstream and you drink it, you're like, this is, this is salt water, this is, this is salty, this is seawater. Because that which is wrong prevails over that which is right. In the same way, the tongue leaves a bitter taste behind. So, by the way, you can praise God with your tongue, and then you can curse people with your tongue, And guess which one remains, which is the one that lingers, which is the one that people remember. The last point is it is an indication of our heart. As I said, he talks about the tongue, but it starts in the head, in the heart, and then it comes out of the mouth. My brother, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. In verse number 11, we're not at the source, we're downstream. Okay, we, find, we don't know that there's actually a fresh water source. But here, you know, we're at the source. It's a fig tree. We're expecting figs. It's a grapevine. We're expecting grapes. Um, we're at a salt spring. We're not expecting fresh water. At the source, we know what to expect. A fig tree can't produce grapes or olives, and a grapevine can't produce figs, and a salt water spring cannot produce fresh water. Why is that? Because the Creator has organized the world as such that each plant bears fruit according to its type. 
An apple tree has apples, a fig tree has figs, a grapevine produces grapes. The nature of the plant determines the fruit. Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever is in your heart is what comes out. We who are God's people are to bear witness to the reality that we have been redeemed. And we do that by controlling our tongues. But we've already seen that in fact, we cannot do this. In our own strength, it's not gonna happen. It's not going to happen. Stop and think a minute. Did God create us with tongues so that we could curse one another? Do you think that Jesus came into the world so we could praise him, but then turn around and curse others? What are we to do? What are we to do? I think we begin by acknowledging that controlling our tongues is not only a good thing, it's a good thing to control your tongue. It is a necessary thing. Our tongues are incredibly powerful. And that's why James starts out by, you know, you want to be a teacher? Take care. Because the work of a teacher is more than speaking, but that's sort of the bulk of it. Um, yeah, we need to be careful. I think we should also confess the sin of our tongues. The hasty word, the idle word, the vicious word, the word of gossip, the lie, the innuendo. These we should confess. And then recognize that it requires the work of the Holy Spirit. That we would use our tongues for the purpose for which they were created not only to praise God, but to bless our fellow men. Not to curse one another, but to speak the truth. Not to speak lies, but to speak truthfully. I mentioned last Sunday, one of the things that has puzzled me over the years about the book of James um, has to do with the church being persecuted. Why has the church been persecuted over the centuries and even today? Millions of our brothers and sisters around the world are being persecuted. I'm pretty much convinced it's not because of what they believe. Maybe that's just the American in me where you can believe whatever you want because it's private. It's how their belief affects their behavior. And our brothers and sisters have been known through the centuries as those who care for those who are in need. If you've got a community and they're basically a bunch of sinners, a bunch of reprobates, but you've got this family or you've got these individuals who are helping those in need, what, do you think you're better than us? Think you're holier than us? And when it comes to controlling our speech, Is there enough evidence to convict us of being Christians? 
Is there enough evidence to say, oh, this person belongs to Jesus Christ? Because he or she controls what they say. They speak the truth. They don't speak in haste. They are quick to listen and slow to speak. There's much for us to consider in this matter. Let's pray together. Our Father, we freely confess that our tongues so often seem out of control. In reality, they're a reflection of what's in our hearts, what's in our minds. As Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We are your people, saved by your grace through the work of Christ. We desire to live holy lives. But at this juncture in the book of James, we come to realize we cannot do this on our own. We cannot do this in our own strength. And just as the Holy Spirit was poured out and enabled the apostles to preach on the day of Pentecost, we need your spirit to be poured out that we might live lives of holiness, lives in which we control our tongues. There's a part of us that wishes we could get rid of our tongues but in fact, they have a wonderful purpose to praise you, to speak truth, to show kindness to those around us. So the answer is not to get rid of it, but to look to you and your spirit to guide us and to give us the strength to live holy lives. There's so much here, and I ask that by your Holy Spirit, we would think on these things, chew on these things, Meditate on them and look to you moment by moment, day by day. I thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.